Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewitt from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewitt. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Schnurr. Dr. Schnurr is an environmental geographer with research and teaching interests in environment and development, and he's here with us in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. His research interests also include political ecology and agricultural biotechnology, farmer decision-making, and environmental security. His regional interests focus on East and Southern Africa, and Professor Schnurr has formerly taught IMGD 2001 at Dalhousie University. Professor Schnurr, always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to GDP. Great to be here. Perfect. Now, this is our expert analysis podcast, which means that we're going to be talking about some of the theories that we cover in the core side and key issues that students and just our listeners more broadly should know about when it comes to development. One of the things that we usually start teaching in international development is this idea of modernization theory, that after World War II, the world was convinced that modernization theory would bring the world into development. What do you think this period of modernization theory entailed, and, and how did it really shape geographies of development? Right, so modernization, you're right. I mean, the, the starting point for understanding modernization theory is to understand the world as it was when it emerged. And so there was this consensus that economic growth was the key to achieving development around the world. And you, so many of the conversations are about how do we get to that end goal? And um, modernization theory really broadened that conversation to focus not just on economic criteria, but also on social and political criteria. And so they were very focused very much on attaining the goal, which is modernity, Mm -hmm. and really sort of sketching out the path for how poorer nations could get there. Right. So the idea was that you produce economic growth and everything else follows. Like this is no other dynamic of development mattered as much as that pure economic growth. And there was <coughs> sort of competing ideas on how economic growth could be achieved. There was John Maynard Keynes and there was Mr. Hayek as well, who thought two very different ways about that. What, what did they think? So, uh, I mean, John Maynard Keynes uh, really articulated that the solution for global poverty and inequity were the same. And this was about injecting capital into countries. And, you know, Keynesian economics is really about this um, commitment to stimulating economic growth through state intervention. So Keynes believed that you couldn't leave the market to itself, that the state needed to play a very active role in in stimulating those markets um, to ensure that positive outcomes were achieved. So, you know, the, the shorthand that's often used is this notion of prime the pump. Right. Um, that when the economy is in times of recessions, the government needs to come in to cut taxes, lower interest rate, increase government spending in order to um, catalyze uh, growth. And then during boom times, by contrast, the government should raise taxes, raise interest rate, cut spending in order to prevent inflation. Right. So he was also speaking at a time when you know the U.S. was struggling with a very serious depression pre-World War II and you know Roosevelt's period. Uh, emphasize a lot of building of materials. So bring in highways, bring in buildings, start building bridges, build, 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 and you're going to have all these other jobs that are created as a result of that. And that building carried on after World War II, especially in Britain, and then we see that reflected in the Marshall Plan, where in Britain in particular, with the development of the National Health Service, is another reflection of this. Build hospitals 
to put workers to work, but then also build more spaces for universities to train doctors and nurses. And even though you have a government-funded healthcare system, the idea is you're putting people to work. And if people have work, then you have development and you have betterment. But Hayek, on the other hand, he was coming from sort of the Austrian school, as they say. And his experience wasn't on the side of Britain in World War II. He was one person who escaped from Austria after the, the Nazi invasion of that country. And his opinion was more that the state, any role that the state had in economics would lead to some sort of concentration of power uh, that would lead to some sort of gross injustice in society. So when you see this sort of rise up, this, this, this Austrian school uh, from Hayek was like, well, if we're going to have any sort of process of development, we'll keep it completely in the free market for fear of some tyrant rising up from the state. But what we saw often in the Global South uh, in this era after the Marshall Plan was that continuation of building. Building roads, building airports, building ports, building electrical grids, and carrying on from there. And this gets us to the point where some development scholars talk about how dependency theory followed modernization. Uh, to suggest that modernization failed because the world was on even ground to begin with, what, what can you tell us about dependency theory and, and how we view development theory today as a result? Right, so you're right. Modernization theory uh, was firmly committed to capitalism, economic growth as the means to achieve prosperity and progress. And it was very prescriptive in sort of setting out the specific stages that um, traditional economies would need to engage with in order to transform themselves into modern capitalism. Right. So in that sense, modernization theory is very linear, it's very structured, it's very um, technical. Dependency theory, on the other hand, disagreed with the fundamental premise that economic growth is going to be the key to prosperity. Right. Um, and viewed um, these questions of progress and growth through the lens of sort of a, a, an unequal world system. And very much saw them in the context of historical continuity. Mm -hmm. So for dependency economists, when they looked at questions of, of wealth distribution, they looked at legacies of colonialism that had extended for hundreds of years. Right. They saw a world capitalist system that worked to the benefit of some at the expense of others. So while the modernization theorists were committed to this kind of, you know, one-size-fits-all kind of plan, dependency theorists argued that actually the system itself produces unequal results. Right. Is this, is this related to uh, world systems theory in a way? Yeah. How, what does that all entail? I mean, it's something I think more of a, uh, that there's there's a core, there's a core center of uh, sort of capital concentration, and then on the outside, you've got regions that produce a certain product, a certain entity, people have traditionally performed various forms of labor, and it's all feeding that central global economy, more or less. That sounds right to me. And. What we're seeing here is sort of a, a challenge where, you know, development hasn't been off the ground more than uh, 20 years at this point, right in the 1960s, and already there's this serious critique that, that's coming with it. The, the other side of it is that the Soviet Union had their side, too, that there was this other entirety of the planet that was trying to achieve development through very different means. Uh, the Soviet side was very much based on agriculture, agriculture, agriculture. It used these heavy inputs big mechanized equipment, really harsh fertilizers and, and nitrogen fixers and use all this sort of chemistry to create 
robust wheat growth and, and everything else, uh, and also investing a lot in military hardware to strategically bring people on board. Yeah, and that axis of modernization theory versus dependency theory really hinged a lot on that tension between capitalism versus communism, right? So mm -hmm. like the, the adherent that you always hear about with respect to modernization theory is, is Rostow, the Harvard uh, economist who ended up, who was a, a huge believer uh, in capitalism and believed that modernization theory and this form of linear economic development was the solution, the sole way that countries uh, could develop their economies and their societies. Mm -hmm. And he very much framed that in political terms, that this was the only way that they could um, uh, prevent the encroachment of communism and ended up being a you know one of the key architects of the right. Vietnam War in furthering that particular political vision. Right, and in some ways, like the the, the numbers started to back it up. That uh, I look, I remember the case of Cuba in the 1950s when you had the Batista uh, dictatorship there. The actual economic growth that was going on in Cuba in the 1950s was always going up and up and up, and so. The U.S. State Department uh, was sending money to Cuba in terms of military aid. The government there, the, the dictatorship, would come back and say, yes, look, look at all this economic growth we're achieving. We're, we're selling sugar. We're doing other industries. Our dairy industry is booming. And so on paper, it's say, okay, as long as GDP, gross domestic product, is going up, great. But behind the scenes, inequalities were just tremendously, you know, growing. Uh, you know, the, the life expectancy between urban Havana and rural countryside was enormous. Uh, you had three out of every four children in rural areas that had uh, parasites. Uh, literacy, the illiteracy rate was almost uh, 60% in, across the country. And none of that was reflected in some of the core key measures of modernization theory, which would have been gross domestic product. Totally. And that's one of the major critiques of modernization theory is that its measurement of economic growth is extremely narrow mm -hmm. um, and fails to take into account a whole bunch of other factors. You know, you mentioned inequality. I mean, GDP emerges at this time as the primary tool for measuring economic growth, even though it wasn't designed to necessarily do that. Yeah. Um, and of course, we know there's all sorts of limitations by measuring growth that way. It, it doesn't, you know, count the value of, of uh, subsistence activities or non-market activities. It only takes into account aggregate growth. So we're right. looking at the country as a whole and is it gaining wealth, but there's no question of distribution and how that wealth is being shared within the population. That's right. Like right now, the two of us, you've got hopefully $50 in your pocket and hopefully I have $50 in my pocket. We've got a gross domestic product of, you know, 25 or, you know, whatever the, the equation is. Um, I guess it'd be easier if we just said we have, you know, if $100 between the two of us, then our, our gross domestic product is then 50 but, you know, if you've got the whole hundred, right, and I've got nothing, then uh, the GDP still remains the same. Right. Like B Bill Gates and my average net worth is like $20 billion. But, you know. You've got a hundred bucks in your pocket. Exactly. <laughs> we have to parse out who, at whose hand, whose pocket that money is actually in in order to evaluate whether wealth is being grown and whether prosperity is also ensuing. Right. And I think this invites the point where we can recognize that this sort of way of thinking is almost 70 years old. Like we're in 2019 today. What are some of the other ways that we can think about putting value on development or about trying to find other measures that encapsulate these things like inequities or autonomy or empowerment? Do we have other tools available to sort of look at this broader dynamic of what development's all about? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons that, that 
courses like this one always start with the the question of modernization theory versus dependency theory because these questions of how we measure growth and prosperity are very relevant today. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in my field, which, which focuses especially on environmental issues, you know, right now people are talking, especially in the United States, about a Green New Deal, right? A massive right. investment of uh, economics and labor and jobs and infrastructure in order to create a, a version of growth that is um, sympathetic and not oppositional to environmental health. Mm -hmm. So the question there is the assumption is still we need growth in order to create prosperity, but can we do it in a way that is more environmentally sustainable? Right. At the same time, there are more radical critiques um, in an emerging area of scholarship that's known as degrowth, which is basically questioning the entire premise of modernization theory that we need economic growth in order to achieve prosperity, arguing that our society, if we continue to commit ourselves to this notion of infinite exponential growth, we're inevitably, inevitably going to exceed the just carrying capacity of the earth. Right. And we're going to have to come up with ways of talking about prosperity in ways that are disassociated from just this notion of economic growth. That's really interesting because, you know, you hear this every now and then, your your work's on, on food and, and biotechnology and, and agriculture, and we'll, we'll have you back on another podcast to talk more about that. But, uh, you know, some of the arguments that come out uh, with that is some are people say, yes, we've got enough food in the world to, to feed everybody. We can even take on another two billion people. We're fine. And similar arguments actually have made in, in my camp over in, in international development and global health about uh, health care, about most of the global burden of disease is occurring because of these inequities that we're failing to measure, failing to understand solutions to. Uh, we've actually got enough money, technology, and resources to overcome most of these issues. Uh, it was a fascinating statement that uh, UNICEF came out with, uh, saying that we're just at the edge of eradicating polio. And the message is that we don't need a new polio vaccine. We just need to figure out ways to get people to rural areas to administer the vaccine and to overcome some of those social inequities yeah. on that way. Uh, what are some other ideas that you might have about if students are saying, okay, why do I need to to really pay attention to theory. Is this something that we just sort of have to do for our first couple lectures, or is it something that we think about as practitioners and even professors in development? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in the connection between theory and practice. I think it's really difficult to engage with contemporary issues of poverty or social inequity or environmental degradation um, in isolation from their history. And that, to me, is one of the big contributions of dependency theory, is mm -hmm. the idea that you cannot separate an issue from its context. So the reason it's important to know uh, both what has come before and the legacies and the lineages of these kinds of thinking are because the ideas and the, the issues that we're engaging with on Twitter, on the front page of newspapers, in The Economist, are very much rooted in the same kinds of questions. Yeah. You know, what what does growth mean? How right. do we how do we share wealth within a population? What's the best way for a society to create wealth but uh, also um, create well-being for its population? Yeah. So those kinds of questions are the same ones that they were asking 70 years ago. That's that's such a good way to put it. I mean, sometimes when we when we think or we mention the word theory, people get a little bit chill, a little bit panic, because they think we're going to go into really in-depth philosophy. Yeah. You know, we're going to go right back to, you know, 
Rawls and all those guys and Heidegger and keep going. We don't need to go that far. To We just need to realize that other people have asked similar questions to the ones we're asking. And it also invites the opportunity to think about the kind of questions that we're interested in. If we're interested in measuring economic growth, well, there's tools to do that. But if we want to ask more questions about the experience of development, the impacts it makes, and who's actually being included in the process, we might want to expand our theoretical framework to ask these questions that include things like gender and race and colonialism into how we approach both our scholarship and our craft. Absolutely. And I mean, the the question of sort of GDP is a great way to underline the importance of understanding sort of the historical and the theoretical perspective with, you know, contemporary stuff that's going on right now. So Mm -hmm. people, I mean, the the notion of GDP is everywhere in development. It's everywhere in the newspaper, and it is accepted as the standard for how we measure growth. Mm -hmm. And yet the the assumptions that are embodied with it and the really important sort of um, limitations of that particular measure harken back to these questions that were happening all the way 70 years ago. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you hear the news tonight gross domestic product up in Canada well the stock market follows it up or if it's down a little bit the stock market bottoms out there's a clear relationship there and and in that world it it matters but the the mistake is to try to think that that one line that one calculation uh, embodies the complexity of societies right and I think that what we want to do is encourage our students and encourage our citizens to 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 ask that question of okay well if the GDP is going up you know what does that actually mean? Yeah. So, I mean, that means that, you know, the exchange of goods and services, well, that's all well and good, but what what is what does it measure and what does it not measure, yeah, yeah. right? And so questions of, for example, environmental health or um, natural resource stocks, those aren't counted within no. GDP. We also know that GDP goes up when lots of terrible things happen, yeah. like pollution or terrorism. Yeah. So GDP on its own gives us a very sp- partial view mm-hmm. of whether things are getting better or worse. And yeah. so we need to be cautious about relying on it as this sort of telltale. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you remember the case of Botswana around 2003 to 2005? A bit. So that was a case where they were seen as this economic miracle because right. the GDP damn near doubled in a period of three years. Like, I think it was around $3,000 per person went up closer to six. Right. And many economists started celebrating the fact that Botswana, a small small population landlocked in southern Africa, uh, recently had developed a diamond mine. And, and, and this sort of gave some people the encouragement to think, see, if you put a mining operation within a small population, gross domestic product comes out of nowhere, we have this miracle. Nowhere in that conversation did it come up that Botswana was in the height of its HIV emergency. Right. To the point where one in every four people were HIV positive, and the mortality rate from HIV uh, was, was claiming about one in every three people. So by the simple fact of staying alive while a diamond mine was present in the country, and that reduction in population with that influx of foreign investment, that's what spiked the GDP. Right. So the foreign investment side got celebrated. The overwhelming loss of life due to HIV was not included in the conversation. Right. So it doesn't tell the story of whether the average Botswanan's life is better, you know, day after day, month after month, year after year. No, it just looked good in the Financial Times and that was it. Right. I think that's a good point where we can we can leave this expert analysis podcast and just say that the sort of questions we brought up about the limitations of GDP 
we should keep those questions with us as we explore other theories and other topics in development down the road. Agreed. All right. Professor Matthew Schneider, appreciate you coming in and bringing your expertise on theories of development. As yourself, you have taught INTD 2001 in the past. It was a pleasure. 